I wanted to bring your attention. Last week we talked about meeting our neighbors, and uh, the uh, one of the things I said is when you first meet your neighbor, don't jump directly into politics. Um, but if you're a guest here today, my name is Greg Harris. I'm the senior pastor here at Olive Branch. Glad that you're with us, and I would love for you guys to disassociate this next quick uh, moment as a political moment. For us as, as Christians, this is not a political issue, that, but this is actually a moral issue that for us that is, um, that is as old as Christianity. And what I want to do is bring your attention to this um, Corona Life Services insert and just ask for some prayer this morning. As we can, as a, uh, This is the weekend in which uh, churches and Christians and um, people all around the United States uh, have gathered in Washington, D.C., gathered in various cities to um, to talk about the pro-life agenda, making sure that every child who is conceived has the opportunity for life. And so uh, the, old, the goal here is just in, is clearly to make abortion an unthinkable thing. Now, um, the old uh, objection oftentimes I've heard over the years in this conversation has been, all you Christians, all you care about is the baby in the womb. You don't care about the person or anything else. And, and I just love to say in Corona, that's, that's just a lie. And it's a, it's, a, it's a big lie, especially when it comes to what Corona Life Services has done. Corona Life Services is an awesome ministry run and started by Christians here in Corona that is, is in its attempt and in its work and ministers to not only um, the mother who is pregnant and the, in the crisis pregnancy, but also um, seeks to show an ultrasound, to have the baby be able to come to full term, um, will offer a direction in uh, adoption services. They, they help to really fill out everything. They provide counseling for that mom. They provide supplies for them if they choose to keep their baby. They will help them find other ministries in order to find a place. If they lose their home, they are, they are just full orb, ready to care for every aspect they can think of. In fact, for women who have chosen abortion, they're not kicked out. They're, they actually have counseling groups that they're able to go through and work through the mourning process and deal together as they kind of come back to healing. And I just love this ministry because of its robust um, work that it does. And so we're going to be praying for them. We're also going to just be praying that we would just continue to see the mindset of a, abortion becoming something that's, if not not rare, just completely unthinkable. And the reason why is Christianity has been this way since the earliest days. In Rome, where they would take babies and just drop them out in rivers or lay them out because they didn't want them or drink a potion just to abort the child. There was all kinds of ways in the past and Christians have consistently seen every child and every baby conceived is made in the image of God. And because we are shocked when we hear of children abused, we are shocked when we hear of children neglected, we are shocked when we think of these situations of children being killed in schools, the Romans wouldn't have thought that way if it hadn't been for Christianity. Jesus changed all of that. And there's plenty of history and understanding for that. You can look at it. But the other second thing that impacted me, not only is that, that kind of reading that I did, but was the, the fact that I got to stand in a courtroom this week with my cousin. Um, my, my family had showed up. We went to the Riverside Courthouse, stood in that room, and uh, there my cousin and her husband were able to hold their baby, Kylie, and actually uh, hear the words um, that this adoption was completely finalized. They were now the parents, not the guardians. So that's exciting. That's a person in my family that has come in and uh, because somebody was willing to have their child and, and give them up for adoption, my cousin gets to be a, um, gets to be a mom and um, her husband gets to be a dad. And that, that's an exciting and powerful thing for us. And I just would love to see that scenario played out 
thousands and thousands and thousands more times as children are twice loved because they've been brought into this world. And so this is what we're going to be praying for and praying for this ministry. And this is a serious time of the year where we think about these things. And I don't mean to, to be political. If you want to talk about this after service, I would love to. You, you may have your own background and, and history with these things, and we understand that. But we do. We want to just um, continue to lift up, pray, and, and pray for these women who are wrestling through this situation. Pray for the families that are surrounding them and the ministries that exist out there to help them. So let's go ahead and do that together, would you? Father, we do. We come before you um, and lift up these children who are right now uh, in what is to be the safest place, the the womb of their mother, uh, where you have designed the the very body of the mother to protect that child from the mother's body itself. Father, we thank you that you've given the opportunity for that child to to have a moment in which they will come to where they can breathe. And we pray that every child that's in that position will, will receive that opportunity. God, for the moms who are in crisis right now, who, are, who find out they're pregnant and they don't know what to do, we pray you'd give them wisdom. We pray that you would get them aligned with a group that helps them see their options and their choices and help them choose life. God, we pray that you would open a family up who's ready to receive that baby, that you'd allow another opportunity for them to bring that, uh, bring another twice-loved child into this world who has um, been loved by bringing into the world and being loved by being chosen to be adopted. God, we pray that you would also just allow those family members surrounding those those women to, to, to have wisdom, to not pressure or push, whether it's a husband, a boyfriend, or a parents, or whatever. We just pray that you would just give grace there. God, we pray for Coral Life Services and ministries like it, that they would be able to continue to provide those options, care, ultrasounds, and all those things, and those, those aids and helps. And for those who are, are working through um, the, uh, the abortion that they have had, God, would you bring them healing? Would you bring them wholeness? And would you allow them to be able to uh, come to a right understanding of what's gone on and a right walk with you? Pray that you'd bless all of these things and God help the church to continue to stand firm in this area. But also, Lord, as we start to, to shift gears into talking about our neighborhoods, help us to be a people of love. And help us to represent you rightly. We ask that you would bless us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thank you guys for that. In fact, I was um, thinking about kids and thinking a lot about kids. One of the things I, I was pondering is that little to-do list that I'm looking at. I have to fix one of my son's bikes. He's not quite old enough yet to fix his bike. And then it made me start thinking about the Christmas season we just went through. And I don't know how many of you still have a present or something that's sitting in your house that came with these words, some assembly required. Anybody remember those terms? Man, I hate that box. I used to like it as a kid because it meant it was a really cool thing. It's like, oh, look, this is going to be awesome. We can put this together. But when some assembly required comes as a father, you know that some gigantic project is coming in your future, is it not? And so it's overwhelming. You're looking at it. And then the worst is when you're actually in there, you're doing the work. And maybe this has happened to me once. You get almost to the end and you're like, where's that one piece? You ever had that happen? You dig through it, and there is a piece missing from the box. It didn't get put into the packaging. It's just gone. Now you're like, do I, you know, what do I do? And you're like, do I zip tie it, duct tape? What, what is the, how? But in some cases, the, the thing is completely useless. This missing piece creates a massive loss in this project that you've been doing. Maybe it's a recipe. You've been sitting there and you've put together all of this wonderful stuff. You're excited about this recipe and you go and you cook it and you get it out of the oven and you taste it and you're like, something's missing. What's wrong? You ever done that one? 
You forgot to put like the salt or you forgot just enough butter or something's gone wrong so that it just doesn't taste right. It's like dry and, and weird. It's like, oh, one time I'd made pancakes. I'm like, what is going on? I'd forgot the eggs. Now, how do you forget eggs in pancake mix? I don't know. But when you miss something like that, it causes big problems. When you miss a small dash in a math situation and, and you've got this problem and you miss the, the negative sign, it radically changes the solution. Small missing things should make great effects at times. And my question to start off this morning is this. If you were missing from your neighborhood, would it make a difference? Think about it. If you were the missing piece in your neighborhood, would your neighborhood radically change? Would it not work correctly? Or are you just some piece that wasn't necessary? You were the garnish that didn't need to be put on there. And I hope that none of us here would, would find ourselves in a scenario where if we were leaving our neighborhoods, there was not a void made. There wasn't something that was going on. That, that the way that we live now would make a blessing to our neighborhood that would create an impact. In fact, the, the goal of this series, if I was to lay it out, is to really say that we need to leave our neighborhoods better than we find it. Can you imagine if you left your block better than you found it? What would that mean? What would that look like for the people living right around you, for the people on your cul-de-sac, for the people in your HOA, for the people that are right here in your town or your city? If we leave our neighborhood better than we find it, it means we would be bringing a value in. We would be making a, a change and really, I think this is the great challenge. We talked about the idea that Jesus was the greatest neighbor, that he who is off in eternity, who is God, came to earth to be amongst us, to love us. He drew near to us to love us. So we should draw near to others to love them. As we emulate and live out the life of Jesus, this one who was the, great, the greatest human being and the great neighbor, that's how we should be as neighbors. And he commanded us to go love our neighbors as ourselves. And so we looked at that and we examined it. And we started asking, well, how do we do that? And we examined what he told us in Luke 10. That we need to be the people who are praying. We need to get out there and go make that connection, get to know and care for our neighbors. And we kind of just left it in that zone. But the whole point of all of this is so that we can leave our neighborhoods better than when we moved in, than the day it was built, so that we have made an impact. And that if you are missing, there would be something about your block that is affected, it's different. How do we do this again, or, or is this really that important? Or a couple questions that I really want to readdress one more time. And that is found in this just simple fact that the best way to leave it better is by increasing its worth. Now, that, that may mean that it means increasing your worth like, hey, I made my house more valuable. Woohoo! Everybody's houses go up. That, that's one way that most Americans probably think of this. But I want to talk about worth in a different manner, in, in a different setting, in a different focus. See, in the, in the Old Testament, in the ancient world of Israel, they uh, divided a kingdom. And the northern kingdom had been... Um, taken away, and the southern kingdom called Judah was remaining. Now Judah, where we get the idea of the name Jews or Jewish, comes from that term Judah, and they were the remaining Israelites in the world. And Babylon, this gigantic empire, had to put its sights on them to take them out. Gathered around that city and marched in and took Jerusalem, crushed the whole place, and exiled all these people into the heart of Babylon. In the middle of all of this, you had these False prophets that were standing up in Israel yelling, screaming, don't worry about Babylon, it'll be okay, we're all going to be safe, don't worry, God's with us, it's no big deal. All these, then suddenly it all falls apart, and then they all stand up and go, don't worry about it, we'll only be there for a few years, we'll be okay, everybody's going to be just fine. 
Well, at the same time, there was a prophet named Jeremiah who nobody listened to, and he wasn't that successful at his job, but he was a prophet and he was faithful. God tells him, I want you to write a letter to the people I've just exiled because you know what? These guys are lying. It's, they're not going to be there only for a short time. And in that letter, here's what is the basic content. He tells them, look, here's what you need to do, Israel. In Babylon right now, you need to build houses. You need to live in them. You need to plant gardens. You need to eat their produce. You need to take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Don't decrease. In fact, he goes on, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Very interesting concept of this idea of welfare. In our, our world, welfare is just handouts. And, and this is kind of the mentality some people have. Welfare is it's what we do to help the poor. It's the government institution. In this case, it has nothing to do with government. It has everything to do with the common good of the people. That we together have a common, a common wellness, a common way of, of that as we are improving as a society, as we improve as a people, everyone improves together. That we care for one another is about community care. And, and so God is telling the people of Israel, where you're at, I want you to build the welfare. I want you to pour value into your neighborhood. Make it better than when you found it. And this is important because what they did is they put this wealth in there, this welfare, and it was going to take time. Look back for a second. Notice what it says. Build houses and live in them. Last time I checked, building a house isn't that fast. Now it's fast comparatively to the ancient world, but it takes a while to build a house. If you don't think so, try planting a garden. How long does that take? Depends on how good you are at it, right? We, we, we planted a couple, a couple tree, fruit trees in our backyard at the beginning of, of the summer or somewhere around there, and we walked out the other day, and my wife's like, ah, is, that, is the gopher eating the roots? Is the water bad? What's going on? Because that, that doesn't seem to be growing very fast. And I'm like, Probably because it's a tree and they go really, really slow, you know? The whole entire garden that we want is going to take years, and we both regret it. They always say, you know, when was the best time to plant a tree? What time is the best time to plant? Ten years ago. You know, it's like that's when you should have planted the tree. And that's that. the garden idea is this is going to take a while. You need to have wives for your kids. They're going to have kids, and you need to give these kids away. This is a generation length. He's saying take down roots. Let's just be honest. We are a transient culture when it comes to our neighborhoods, are we not? We are ready to up and move. In fact, they say every seven years we're ready to change houses. Every seven years. They tell you don't get used to your congregation that much because you're not going to be preaching to the same people in seven years. And that's pretty right. People change. They move out, especially here in California where people are like, you know, you, you got this money and you start looking at Iowa and you're like, I could have how much and how big? Bro? Wow. Idaho is amazing. You know, whatever. There's all these different locations that look so much more beautiful and bigger. And, and the point is that you have a transient society and especially so here in Corona. As I've been thinking about this. What is with the loneliness of Corona? What is with the neighborhoods? I talk to a lot of people like, I can't really get to know my neighbor. It's kind of awkward. We talk, but you don't really get to have a community anymore. And I'm like, that's weird because that's not what I remember growing up here in Corona. So I grew up in Corona and my dad grew up in Corona. He played baseball on this very property a thousand years ago or something. So 
He lived just down the street before there was a freeway, when there was a hill called El Cerrito, and there was not a 3M mine that was destroying it. This was uh, the boondocks for a place called Corona, which was the boondocks for a place called Orange County in L.A. I mean, this was Nowheresville. And we grew up, I grew up in Corona where, you know, you didn't come this direction unless something was wrong. You went into Riverside. Maybe you went to Yorba Linda, but that was the rich people. That was Orange County, baby. You know, that's not, we don't go over there. Well, Orange County, we play in the Orange Groves, and one day Orange County started moving out here as the homes, as the Orange Groves disappeared and the homes started being built, and more and more people from Orange County started moving in. What was weird is that everybody would come up to you and be like, yeah, Corona's got like that small town feel, but it's got so many people. And I'm like, yeah, because all the small town people knew each other. And what we found was a lot of Orange County people would come to come and live, and no offense if you're an Orange County person, this is like a smackdown. But what this was, was it was interesting that they would come move here, but they would keep their life in Orange County. They would get these nice big homes, these big areas, because it was cheaper and you'd get more, but they would work in Orange County. They had their social connections in Orange County. Many of them reserved the time before they would move churches. They would stay in Orange County and, and, or in L.A., and they would keep their lives going out there. And so they lived in their car more than they lived in their home. And as time has gone on, it's been harder and harder for these neighborhoods where you have these new, these new transient groups coming in to establish that. And that's what I think we're facing. And so let me just make a call. Welcome to Riverside County. This is your home. Build houses. Plant gardens. Eat the produce. Take wives. And you know what I'm saying. Build some roots. This is an opportunity that God has placed you amongst people to influence and transform your area. God set those people around you on purpose. He wants you to be a blessing to where you live, to pray for its welfare and see it grow, to care about the people that surround us, to get to know our neighbors at the least. Because God wants to do something in you. And this wasn't just a tirade. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I'm, I, what I believe is that we can get caught up into moving around. So God says, stop and slow down. Get focused. Because you need to look to build wealth in your area. And I'm not talking about financial wealth. I'm talking about another kind of welfare. See, poverty exists. But poverty does not, and it exists on your block. But poverty does not always mean material poverty. In fact, if you look at what Jesus says in, in the book of Matthew, chapter 5, Jesus is saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that phrase, poor in spirit. That's a weird phrase. That's not poor in money. That's poor in a spiritual life. Poor in spirit are people who, who don't know who made them. They, they don't know their creator. They don't know why they live now and why they live here. Why don't you live in another country? This world's pretty big. Why don't you live in a, in a more difficult setting? Why do you have the blessings that you have of being a, a middle class or upper class person? Why is it that you have all of this in, at your fingertips? You know, and what's going to happen to you when you die? And how are you going to deal with those things that you feel guilty about and that you know you've messed up on, but you keep burying it down, hoping you've learned from it or or something. What if you don't know the answers to even those basic questions? You're spiritually poor, and there are plenty of spiritually poor people on every block that we live on. Sure, there are materially poor people, but some of us we live in places that it's not really that obvious that there's material poverty because it's hidden behind lots of bills and lots of credit. But there is material poverty surrounding us, yes. But there's also social poverty. 
You think about people who wrestle with the fact that if, some, if their family was to die around them or there's a crisis in their family, they could go through the Rolodex and what they would find is a bunch of people they party with or hang out with or maybe work with, but they don't have anybody who knows them so intimately they'd be able to show up and give them aid. That's a, that's a socially poor person. And they are one crisis away from disaster. And their loneliness increases. There are some people who have a psychological and, and um, you know, kind of personal poverty. We are a broken people, fallen even in ourselves. We may have just psychological struggles, fallenness. We, we have sins and addictions that are going on. And they're right there in your neighborhoods. They're right there and they look like prescription drug addictions. They look like struggles with pornography. They look like abuse and anger in the home. They look like confusion. They look like depression because you know what? Some people we know, it's not that they've done anything wrong and it's not that it's sin. It's that literally their brain just isn't being fed with the right chemistry it's like the it's like a heart problem it's just a brain problem because we need to help people and care about people and lift them and walk with them and, and know them because when we see that poverty we should be praying and lifting it up we should bring in a wealth that comes from the god who has given you spiritual and all these other things now we're all fallen we all have a poverty somewhere but when we're able to indicate it and help one another out, we build community. We connect with each other. And when I say this, it's like, wow, that's a big call, man. How do you, I mean, I ask myself, how would I even go about doing this? Well, first of all, you go back to last week and you look through how do you get to know people so you can see these poverties. But then I need some tools. How do I meet this? How do I get in there? Well, anytime I think of, I don't have a tool for that, you know what I do? I go to my next door neighbor and I ask him to borrow one because he's got it. And we need to borrow some tools. Now just make sure you return your neighbors, but these ones Jesus is going to give us because he's the best neighbor. And so we want to look to the tool that he used primarily, which was to give himself away. That's another way of saying loved people. You see, what Jesus did is he gave himself away for their needs. He gave them himself away for their betterment. He saw what they needed. That's called a poverty. He saw where they lacked. That's called a poverty. And he poured himself into it. And so I'm going to show you some scenarios of what Jesus did and how he worked through to build some value into his world. And the first one starts with this idea that Jesus hung out. He played. Can you imagine that play is one of these things that can actually pour value into the lives of other people? And this is what Jesus did. He actually played. In fact, in this section in Luke chapter 5, he play, hangs out and plays with some people you never expect him to. It says, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. Now, just replace tax collector with the word terrorist. And you get a better idea of how it would feel to read this sentence in the first century as a Jewish person. And the reason why is a tax collector was a Jewish man who was a citizen of Israel, but he was taking money from all his brothers and sisters to ditch it over to Rome and make himself a prophet. This guy's a traitor. This guy's trying to support the enemy system that's invaded. So they weren't talked to. They weren't liked much. And Jesus goes, I want you as one of my disciples. Levi, come follow me. Levi gets up. He's like, this is awesome. I want you to come to my house. I want to throw a party. Well, who are you going to invite? All the other tax collectors my terrorist cell. I'm going to have them all come in. We're all going to sit together. We're going to invite our prostitute friends because that's the only people who want to talk to us. And that's what it was. It was a whole room of these tax collectors and prostitutes and Jesus sitting right there in the middle of it, spending time. 
And of course, this bugged the Pharisees we saw last week, and they asked their question. But what I'm showing you is Jesus was not afraid to get involved in the parties and things that were around him. You might be invited to a neighborhood party. Go. You might be invited to a business party. Now, as long as it's not like going to something that you know, that, that would be sin for me. I can't, I can't go to the bar. I can't go to that club thing. No, I, I gotta. But if it's, if it's available for you to connect with, um, with people who aren't Christians or you're able to connect with your neighbors, do it. Jesus would in, actually, I think, invite us to be the ones setting the parties. Bill Hybels, in, in a lot of his advice, says you should do Matthew parties. And that's because Levi's other name was Matthew. He says, throw a party. Have people come to your house. Maybe you're getting baptized in a week or so. Have a baptism reception after church. Invite your neighbors. Invite the people in your family and have them either come to church and see it or go to your house afterwards just to celebrate with you. You're not asking for presents and things like that. You, you invite people to a party. Maybe you have everybody, hey, we're going to do a dessert party. You bring a dessert, I'll bring a dessert. Let's all get together and we'll have this great time. We'll have a dessert. You know what's funny is some of them will be waiting by the end of it going like, okay, well, you saw me Amway? What's going on here? And when you don't do anything, you say, this was fun. I'll see you guys next week. They'll be like, what just happened? This is weird. It was a party, like a normal party. I didn't even get any oil. It's like, and so a party should be something that you can just simply celebrate to invite people in. It's a great way just to converse and connect. I want you to consider it. What are some other ways that you can, you can have fun with people? We have these interest groups we're talking about right here in, your int in this insert. The interest group is just a way to say, hey, we got something fun we're doing. Whether it's fishing out on a lake or out in the ocean, or whether it's, hey, we're going to go run and a long way, and we like running a long way. Hey, you want to come join me? We're, we're going to go, uh, we're literally going to do some indoorsmanship. What's that? Well, we all got computers and we're going to sit around and blow each other up or whatever. Trust me, there's lots of guys who will be like, yeah. And I think there's a great option for a party or something like that coming up like in a couple of weeks. Some kind of game or something's happening on television. You know, what an excuse, right, to have people over, to just hang out, to get to know our neighbors, to build those relationships. This is one of those things. The second one is that you'll notice that Jesus was involved in people's lives to give himself away in times of trouble. In this case, he had just cast out a legion of demons out of a man, brought him back to wholeness, sailed back across a lake after doing this whole ministry, shows up and a guy named Jairus, who's the head of the synagogue, comes up to him and says, please come with me, my, my kid is dying. My daughter's on her deathbed. Now that right there is a frightening term, isn't it? My daughter's on her deathbed. Jesus goes, fine, I'll come. He goes with him. In the middle of that, a woman interrupts the situation by touching his fr the, the, the fringe of his shawl or the fringe of his, uh, sorry, the tassels on his tunic and boom, she's healed of her own problem. And Jesus stops. And all these people are pressing in on him. He goes, somebody just touched me. And the disciples are like, yeah, everybody's touching you, Jesus. It's like, no, power just went out of me. Somebody just got healed. Stops the whole parade. Can you imagine your gyrus? Your daughter's dying. You're sitting there going, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, don't talk to her, come on. You're, you're with me, I got you. And then, lo and behold, he heals her, talks to her, frees her, moves forward, finds out the daughter's already died, and yet he doesn't stop. He stays in the pain, listening and sitting. Until he finally comes to the home and heals the daughter and raises her from the dead. And it's a miracle. But Jesus isn't afraid to enter into the difficulty. He's constantly pressing into the trouble. And I think this is better illustrated 
um, through, uh, through Gina here, uh, who's going to come on up. Would you welcome Gina Vildebel? She's going to come up and share a story about how this looks. Now, Gina is actually our family director at the church. She oversees our youth and our children's departments. But before she did that, she was just one of you guys. So, uh, and this happened back then, right? It did. So, um, by the way, Gina's an introvert. So this just goes to show that all, even us introverts can, can, can do ministry because we your husband's the extrovert, ministry. right? Yes, he is the extrovert. He likes to talk a lot. Um, so... We live in a community that is really easy to just pull in your garage and shut the garage and go in your house. We have pulled down the alleyway and there's four garage doors that, that face each other. And so one afternoon I came home from work and the neighbor that is Kitty Corner from us, um, you know, we just waved. He liked to watch football a lot in his garage and yell certain things that Christians should not say. Um, <laughs> But anyway, one day I came home from work, was walking out to get my mail, and there were a few police cars in front of his house, and he was standing in front of his garage talking to um, a couple police officers, and so as I walked by and walked back, stupid question to ask, but I said, hey, is everything okay? And a few explicits, and, you know, later, and he said, no, everything's not okay, my sister was just murdered. And so you know, what do you, what do you do with that? So I went back in the house and processed for a few minutes. And so the Lord led you to do something? How did you do that? He did. He uh, made my palms and my underarms sweat. And that's always his cue of Gina, you need to go have a conversation with someone. God talks to us in different ways. He does. Yes. So, um, a little while later, um, I just, I walked back outside and I just had a conversation with him and it really like introduced myself to to him and shared what my husband and I did and um, just let them know that we were there for them if they needed anything. And um, that led to an ongoing relationship. What would you guys do? How, like, So yeah, we uh, started with walking through that journey with him, which was really, really hard. His sister was in a, an abusive relationship and left her husband and He's the one that murdered her, and so Aaron and Aaron adopted their daughters. So we just walked through that process with them, and we did a lot of listening um, at first, and then that just led to um, a relationship with them. They moved away about five or six years later, and we kept in contact, but we walked through different journeys with them. Um, They lost a child uh, while she was pregnant and had a miscarriage, they had some relationship difficulties, and so we were the God string. So we spent, the thing we had in common was football. So we watched some football games with them, but we had a lot of God conversations in the midst of all of that. So so where's that kind of relationship ended up after the years now? I know so, it kind of turns. Yeah, a year ago, um, he passed away suddenly, and um, we reconnected. We've stayed, you know, that social media, Facebook thing, in contact, but um, that that connected uh, his wife and, and Bob and I. They came back to us a few different times when they needed to talk or, or needed to do something. And, and I just, I have to believe that he's in heaven with our Savior um, because we were able to share the gospel sometimes with words, sometimes with the way we lived our life, but just we're able to have those God conversations with them. Awesome. Yep. Well, thank you, Gina. So would you just thank Gina just for kind of sharing that? I want to... Gina's story brings out a lot of good details. I think one, a lot of us would fear stepping into a situation like that, just as she did. And I think uh, what, she, what you heard is that it's a lot of listening. 
You may one day see an ambulance out front of your neighbor's house and be the first one over there to just be there. Maybe you just pray. Maybe you just stand there. But I want you to think of that song that we sang, I'll follow you into the homes of the broken. You see, you don't ever go alone in these cases if you're a Christian. You go where Christ has already been. He's been in there. He's wanting to care. He's wanting to minister. And when you show up, the, the Jesus who is always with you is there. He's stepping into the scenario. He will give you words. He will give you aid. He will give you the opportunity. He'll show you how to serve because Jesus was constantly serving. He constantly gave himself away. Even in the hard times, he did this. In fact, in Matthew, it's at a time he had lost someone. John the Baptist has just been beheaded. He, found, he realized, wow, I need to get away. But when a crowd's heard it and they followed him on foot in the towns, and when he got ashore, he saw this crowd and he had compassion on them and he healed their sick and eventually he'd feed them. And Jesus knew that sometimes I got to set aside my own pains and my own struggles to care about other people. You know, sometimes we got to set aside our own agendas to, to care about people on our block. Maybe they're in pain, maybe they're not. Maybe it's just all you can do is bring a meal one day. So you double your recipe and you pack it up and you take it over. What a simple thing to care for somebody in your neighborhood. Maybe it's grab their dry cleaning because you know they just haven't had any time. Maybe you wash their car or you just find out, you just because you know them, you can say, is there something we can do to make this time easier for you? And you'll be surprised how often people may step, in, step up and say, yeah, this would be great because we're just really wrestling right now. And other times it may be that you just simply want to serve your neighbor because, hey, you've been connecting with them. You find out there's a need and you're like been praying because, hey, you picked up the booklet and you've been keeping notes and you didn't forget. Um, and because you're, if you want one of these, they're still available out there in the, in the Connection Central. But it's the opportunity for you and I to just go, oh, yeah, I've been praying for this. Hey, I think I could do something about that and step in and make that connection and bless somebody. Jesus did this constantly. And it's a simple tool we can pick up that meet a need, be there in a time of trouble, you know, hang, hang out and play. But the bottom line that Jesus did all the time, everywhere he went, is he talked to people. You ever notice that? Jesus talked and it didn't matter who it was. If it was a leper that nobody talked to, he talked to them. If it was a person who was um, his enemy, he talked with them. Even though it was strained, even though it was tenacious, he was willing to continue to go back in that temple and talk to these people. Jesus didn't ignore anybody. If it was a tax collector, he talked to them. If it was the regular person, he talked to them. If it was the synagogue, he talked to them. He was constantly talking to people. And this is important because we can become very private instead of becoming people who are open. And if we give our lives away, it means that we're connecting and talking. I struggle with this personally. Uh, sometimes I don't know what to say. I don't really want, know where to go. And again, I want to ask questions. But where I really struggle with is I'm walking out of In-N-Out or I'm walking out of a restaurant. Somebody says, hey, you got any change? And everything in me goes like, no, I don't. I want to get in my car now and go because I'm busy. Instead of, whoop, stop, interaction. Is this from the Lord? You know, you live in my town. Hey, so, no, I don't really have any change. What's going on? Why, what, you know, can I help you in a different way? And you can find out a lot with some simple questions and simple dialogue. And there may be an opportunity to provide a service you never imagined you could have. Pointing them in the direction of the, of the settlement house or pointing them in the direction to where they can find and actually begin to get stronger. But we don't know that if we don't talk. And so Jesus uses talking as his primary tool. And one of the things I used to do with students when I would say, talk about this kind of stuff is I'd tell them, listen, who's the kid in your, on your, in, your, in your school? Who's the kid who nobody talks to? 
You see him, he sits there by himself at lunch. You know who I'm talking about. He's the guy who's getting more moodier and darker and darker. You should be connecting with them. Because we're Christians, and it doesn't matter what our social capital happens. We need to be connecting with them. And kids would take that up and take that challenge, but the same thing is true for us. Which home on your block is the one everybody suspects bad people live in, right? Like in the burbs, right? You're my next door neighbor. They kill people and bury them in the bar. Yeah, no, it's like, who, who lives in that home? Who, who's there? Why don't we go there and connect with them? Knock on that door. Meet them. Be the first in. Find out, hey, the reason they're not here, that we don't see them much is because, or whatever reason. Why aren't we the ones that engage and, and step in and have a conversation? Because we need to be building these relationships. We need to be building these things out. Now, that also means that as you build that relationship, you get to know one of the most precious things that Gina talked about were those God conversations. You get those opportunities that one day they're going to ask you, well, what do you believe? And what I want you to be ready for is to give the message. The other tool that Jesus used constantly was he gave the message away. And we should too. Back in Luke chapter 10 last week, he, he told us all this route to build a relationship. And then he, at the end, he said, whenever you enter a town you receive what, and they receive you, eat what is set before you, heal the sick, so serve it, stick around, serve, and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. Give the message away. Give it out. Let people know. This is, if you want to bless and change your block, the ultimate blessing is the message that Jesus has given a relationship with the creator, a knowledge of how to deal with the sin and the mess of our lives, a direction for our living, and an entire package that comes. We should be able to give that to somebody. It's almost as if I told you, hey, I met this guy who gave me a key. He told me it's the key that unlocks heaven. You put it in any door, you open the door, and you walk right into heaven. I tried it. It works. Trust me. If that was a true story, you'd be at Home Depot every day, you know, getting new keys made. Running around going, I'm giving you the key to heaven. I'm giving you the key to heaven. I'm just giving you the key to heaven. you got to have this key. It just gets you into heaven. Some people will be like, awesome. They'll try it. They'll go copy keys. Other people will look at it and say, that's stupid. They're not a key to heaven. But that doesn't stop you if you know this is the key to heaven. That's what God has given you in the gospel. He's given you the ability to hand out the keys to heaven. So when the opportunity comes, that not turning people into people into pro, into projects—that's not what I'm talking about. When they ask you, now you open the door. But can't? Do you, are you ready? Launchpad prepares you, and they teach you how to do this with one simple sentence in Romans chapter six, verse twenty-three. This is one that we should all memorize. It sums up this message so simply. All it reads is, "For the wages of sin is death." But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Very simple sentence, but let me unpack it for you for a minute. You turn, they say, so what do you believe? Well, let me share this with you. Well, the wages of sin is death. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means that one, there's a paycheck coming. We're going to get paid something. And everybody loves being paid something unless you open it and you find it's a bill. See, what we get paid for our lives, for our sin, for the things we've done wrong to each other, and what we get paid for ignoring God and, and, and not knowing our creator and ignoring him and not doing what he's asked of us is you get paid death. And this isn't just physical death. This is ultimate death because there's a debt we owe. And one day we're going to stand on the other side of, of our own physical death and we're going to face our creator and he's going to ask us this question. You, you've done all these things. What are you going to do to pay for those? Well, I was a good person. That's what you were required to be. 
It doesn't cover over the past. Well, I learned from those things. You're supposed to learn from mistakes, but it doesn't change the fact that you did these things. What are you going to use to pay? Well, I've got all these, these gifts and these talents. I gave you those. They were on loan. What are you going to pay with? And the answer is we won't have anything to pay with. We walk them through that process, too, but that's, not the, that's the bad news. The good news is that God doesn't want that scenario to happen. Instead, what he gave is a free gift. And I mean a free gift. Think about it, guys. It's free. You don't earn it. You don't pay for it. You can't be so horribly evil you can never receive it. The gift is there. It's given. And what is this gift? It's eternal life in Christ Jesus. What's eternal life? Eternal life is living forever. Eternal life is the kind of life that God has where it's purposed and focused. It knows our creator. It knows who you know who you are, why you're here, why you live now. Not two centuries later, not on another part of the planet. No, now here he gives you focus and purpose. He tells you what you do to pay that debt and he pays it for you. This is the gift that God gives And so we can explain that to our friends. In fact, we can get to the point and say, and and he gives it to you if you would want it. That's what what this is great about. And so I hope that you guys take time to just learn this simple text, to understand how this works. So that whether you're hanging out with your friends in an interest group, whether you're hanging out at a party, whether you're just helping them by caring about them, whether you're serving them, no matter what it is, one day when they ask you, what is it? What's going on? You can tell them. Well, I'd love to share it with you. And this is the way we do that. And what I'm hoping, guys, is that we would take this in and drink deep, this idea of being a good neighbor. Because let's be honest, in the news right now from Paris, that'd be rough to be in that neighborhood, wouldn't it? Can you imagine that it happened on your block? And you're sitting there telling yourself, man, what if I had just gotten to know him better? What if I had just, what if we had just tried to get the community closer? What if we all just had known and what if it's not so much that it was that block, but it was the block that they'd lived on previous in Texas or in the block they'd lived on previous in another state, that they had met them at their time of crisis before it fell into this wickedness. You never know what you're averting by getting to know your neighbors. You never know what the difference you're making when you connect with others. And Jesus has placed us on our blocks to be a blessing and to make a difference. So leave these blocks better than when we moved in. Amen? Let's pray. God, I pray that you would indeed help us to be those people who make that difference, who leave our neighborhoods better than we found them. God, I pray that we would just increase their worth, that we'd be ready and willing to find that poverty and pour in that value. God, whether it's through partying and hanging out and enjoying people or serving and caring, whether it is through difficulty and struggles in lives or just simply talking, give us this chance that we could make this difference. And God, when that time comes and we're offered the opportunity to let them know what, we, what it is that drives us, what it is that makes us this way, would you please allow us to be honest, and be able to share the great gift that you've given to us, the gift that Jesus has paid that debt. Thank you for paying our debt. Thank you for giving us what we have. May we not squander it. May we walk worthy in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.